Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Today, it is November 26th, and uh, our guest this afternoon is Nir Ale. Um, he's written a book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. It's uh, got some really interesting ideas about how people get addicted to games like Angry Birds and Farmville and Facebook and Twitter and all those fun things online. And it's really applicable to our topic very well. So this is going to be a really nice conversation. Um, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little ad for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available on Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Nir Al is with us right now. How are you doing this afternoon, Nir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's great to have you on this show. So let's jump right in. Uh, tell me, what is the hooked model for building these habit-forming products? Sure. So uh, I spent many years in the gaming and advertising industries, and I picked up a lot of these techniques uh, that these two industries use to basically, you know, let's face it, you, they, they use mind control techniques, and they... And they uh, they use these techniques to, to change user behavior. So if you think about advertising, it's a $27 billion a year industry in the United States alone. And, and the advertisers don't spend that money for their health. They spend it because it changes people's behavior. Uh, and the same can be said for the gaming industry, that when it comes to online games, uh, these, these uh, experiences are very masterful at changing users' Uh, behaviors when it comes to how they interact with the game and how often they uh, choose to play these these games. And so what I learned in, in my years in those industries was that there are all types of techniques that these companies use uh, to change user behavior and that I think that many of these techniques can be used for good. And so what I wanted to do was to make a, a very accessible guidebook for people either building these products that hopefully can help people form healthy habits uh, you know, I think there's a, a real untapped potential out there to use the psychology uh, around human behavior and around people's relationships with the products and services they use to help people live happier, healthier, more connected, better lives. And so that's that's the number one reason I wrote the book was to help people who are building uh, new products and services to help people live better. The second reason I wrote the book was that I, I believe that the world is becoming a potentially more addictive place and that we need to be careful of how we use these technologies. Not that they're not very, you know, that they're, they're not good. They're, they're very good net, I think. But some people can go too far. And I think all, all of us, to some degree, can overuse certain products and services. And so what I really wanted to explain was why. Why do we get so drawn in to many of these products and services? And what can we do to put technology uh, and the products and services we use in their place so that we can control our habits as opposed to our habits controlling us. And so the hook model that you asked about is this four-step process, is this four, these four phases that these habit-forming products pass us through in order to form these long-term habits, these behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. Uh, and those four steps, and we can you know, go into further depth around these four steps, are a trigger, action, reward, and an investment. Yeah, tell us about the trigger. Yeah, so uh, the trigger is the first phase of the hook model. It's uh, where there's something that tells the user what to do next. And these triggers come in two types. We have our external triggers. So these are things where the information for what to do next is implicit in the trigger itself. Something like a call to action button that says click here or buy now or uh, in the physical world, it can be a, a friend telling you about this great new app you should try out. These are all examples of external triggers. Internal triggers are things that tell the user what to do next, where the information comes not from the external trigger, in this case, not from explicit information, but instead it's informed through an association in the user's mind. And so these things can be uh, things such as routines or situations, certain places, certain people, and most frequently, emotions are these internal triggers. So what we do when we're feeling 
lonesome or indecisive or lost or fearful or bored, what we do when we experience these emotions, and you'll notice if you, if you listen there, all those emotions were, had something in common, and that was, of course, that they were all negative emotions. Mm -hmm. So these pain points, these things that we don't like to experience, triggers us to find a solution uh, to, our, to our pain. So whatever will, will uh, provide a salve for our itch, so to speak, it becomes our habits, becomes what we turn to with little or no conscious thought. So when we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we hop onto Google even before we even scan our brains to see if we might know the answer. Uh, and, and when we're bored, we, you know, there's all kinds of things to alleviate boredom. We don't like the sensation of boredom. We uh, check email, we uh, go to YouTube, we check stock prices or sports scores, or the news, lots of things to alleviate this internal trigger of boredom. Mm -hmm. So after the trigger, the next step is uh, action? Right. Tell exactly. us about the action. Yeah, so the action is the simplest thing done in anticipation of a reward, the simplest behavior that the user would do to get their reward, to get their itch scratched. So what we find is endemic to all sorts of habit-forming products is that they have this very, very simple action phase, something as simple as opening an app or scrolling through a feed, or pushing the play button on YouTube might all be examples of the action phase. These very, very simple actions done in anticipation of a reward. And so the action needs to be simple to be effective? Right, so the simpler it is, uh, the less motivation is required. So there's uh, some work that comes from a, uh, a psychologist by the name of B.J. Fogg, who uh, is, a, is a researcher at Stanford, and he, he posits that uh, for any human behavior to occur, you need these three fundamental elements. You need sufficient motivation, ability, and a trigger. And so triggers we just talked about, and ability is how difficult or easy something is to do. And so what Fogg tells us is that the easier something is to do, the less motivation is required. And of course, there's similar lines of thought from uh, Kurt Lewin, who was a psychologist for over 100 years ago who told us that behavior is a function of a person within their environment. And that's certainly true, that you know, the easier something is to do, the more likely that behavior is to occur, and therefore it requires less motivation on behalf of the user. I'm glad you mentioned B.J. Fogg because we interviewed B.J. Fogg on the show about six months ago. So if our listeners are interested, they can uh, go into the archive and listen to that interview. That was a really interesting one about habit formation, too. Uh, but let's continue on. Uh, the next thing I see here is variable reward. Why should rewards be variable? Wouldn't a constant reward seem to be better? Well, not, not necessarily. So it turns out that, you know, from the classic work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning, Skinner showed that when a reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement, so in his famous experiments, he took these pigeons, he put them in a little box, he gave them a disc to peck at, and every time they pecked at the disc, at first, they would basically peck at the disc whenever they were hungry. He could teach these pigeons to, to respond to this, this stimulus of this, this little uh, lever that they could peck at to receive a reward, to receive a little food pellet. And so basically the pigeons would eat, would peck at this disc whenever they were hungry. But then when Skinner did something a little bit different, when he introduced an intermittent reward, so when the pigeons would peck at the disc, sometimes nothing would come out. The next time they would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And what Skinner observed was that the rate of response, the number of times that the behavior was observed, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule. And the reason this happens, I mean, Skinner didn't know this in his time, but what we now know, because we can actually see this happening in the brain, is that, uh, is that the, the brain becomes more stimulated in, in its reward centers, principally the nucleus accumbens, when the reward is given on a variable schedule. So when you experience this itch, this anticipatory response, this, this craving, this desire to do a particular behavior, it turns out that that reaction is stimulated when rewards are given on a variable basis. So particularly be, before the habit is formed or in early stages of forming a habit, when something is variable, and of course there are other words for this, right? Another word for variability is fun and surprise and novelty. 
all of these things are, are things that make the reward more rewarding. They make it more interesting, more exciting. And so this element of variability, novelty, uh, unpredictabilities, and all sorts of experiences that we find most habit-forming. So if we were building a game, for example, uh, we wouldn't want the same sequence to repeat every time that you could memorize it, but we would want some kind of random factor there that varied things every time we played it. Is that correct? Exactly. So, so there's two ways that, that products and services leverage this variability. Either they make something more variable, more interesting. So in the example of a game, you know, the games get pretty boring once we master them. Once they're predictable, they're no longer interesting. And this is, of course, why we see uh, games come and go, right? We're not playing Super Mario Brothers and Pac-Man anymore. It's the next game and the next game and the next game. Because after a while, these games become predictable and they're no longer interesting because they're not, they're not variable anymore, and so we tire of them. The other way that, that products and services can use this element of variability is to make something that is already inherently variable a bit more predictable. So if you can give people agency over something that is already unpredictable, that's another way that you see a variable reward. So searching on Google, Google wouldn't benefit by making the search results more variable. What they're trying to do is to make something that's already variable, meaning the search for, uh, for information out there, the uncertainty that's inherent in our search for information, they're trying to give the user some sense of agency and control over something that is already you know, very variable. Finding the right piece of information is generally hard to do. It's unpredictable. You don't know how much time it's going to take you to finally find the thing you're looking for. And so they're actually uh, making, in that, in that product circumstance, they're making it more predictable. So we see one or the other, either making situations more, predicti uh, more predictable that are inherently variable or bringing variability into a circumstance like in a game, for example. I like that Google example. It's nice. It's so nice today, you know, to be able to locate these things reasonably quickly. Um, I'm an old guy now, so I remember going to the library. First of all, you'd have to go to a specialized university library, like a medical library, and then you'd have to go through the card catalog and manually search through these cards and then go up to the stacks and try to find the books. They had closed stacks, then you had to have them send the books down to you. Right. And then you would find out, oh, I'm in the wrong library. I have to go to the physics library <laughs> across the campus to get this yeah. information. Yeah. Really a long process. To, I mean, it could take you, you know, days right. to track right. down one resource. And now, you know, you're doing the same thing in minutes with Google. It is so, you know. No wonder right. people keep coming back. Well, Google, Google has a great hook, right? The, the trigger of uncertainty happens to people throughout their day. And as you, used to say, as, as you said, it used to be that whenever we felt this pang of uncertainty, when we didn't know something, when we were curious, well, we would have to take a lot of steps. So the action phase of the old way of doing things was pretty laborious. And of course, mm -hmm. people did less searching when, it, when searching meant go to your local library to figure something out. Of course, now you know the the the, the miracle of of uh, connected technology uh, lets us do this in the palm of our hand, which of course means we do more of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which I mean, I think people are a lot smarter now. They're a lot more savvy about what's going on than they were. Of course, there's tons of misinformation on the web, but I think people are getting pretty good at navigating it, and people are getting pretty good at finding actual, real good information. Yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is where there's this um, knee-jerk reaction uh, to technology today that, that, that um, is troublesome to me because, you know, frankly, if you read uh, Nick Carr uh, wrote a book called The Shallows, and there's been others as well. There's a, a book called The Lone Together by Sherry Turkle, and these are really interesting examinations mm -hmm. of how basically, I mean, the, the, the underlying thesis is that technology is making us dumber. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nick Carr mm -hmm. wrote an article uh, that was titled, Is Google Making Us Dumb? And his contention was that these technologies are changing our brain. And it is undeniable that these technologies are, in fact, changing our brains. But everything changes our brain. Any, any learned behavior changes the brain. That's, that's nothing miraculous or special. 
what we don't know is are these changes for the better or for the worse? And mm. and my contention, I mean, look, I wrote a book on habit-forming technology that is as much a warning about uh, the powers of habit-forming technologies as uh, what I hopefully think is something that illuminates the opportunities around habit-forming technologies. But I think it's too simplistic to say these things are bad or these things are good, because as you mentioned before, there's so many upsides to these technologies that we don't know quite yet what the net benefit or net costs are. And so my advice is that we need to be aware of what's going on, that you know, if we buy these things wholesale, that's the wrong approach. If we think, oh my God, all this stuff is so fantastic and uh, we use technology to the tilt all the time when we should really be focused on what's happening in the real world, clearly that's not always appropriate. But it's also inappropriate, I think, to say, well, that's, you know, these, these fangled contraptions that the kids these days are using and they're, they're, they're wasteful and silly and mindless. Well, that's not exactly, the, I, I think, a, a, a thoughtful response either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I did. I went and heard Sherry Turkle speak uh, when she was at the New School when I was a student there just uh, about six months ago. Uh, it was very interesting. Uh, the presentation was about how the new communications technology is destroying conversations so people aren't communicating with each other anymore. And of course, there was a whole uh, bunch of blowback from the audience, the young right. people in the audience in particular, we're communicating in different ways. It's not necessarily that they're bad ways. Um, and I have to, you know, agree that I can, well, I can actually see both points. Uh, but definitely people are communicating in new and different ways than they used to. And, you know, the ultimate question is, is it better? And I think definitely in some ways it's better. There's no question about that. Yeah. You know, I think um, you know, not only... I think in many ways it's it's here's the two things we know. I don't know if it's better or worse. I think that's probably debatable, and we're going to debate ad nauseum about that. Mm -hmm, but here's the two mm -hmm. things I I do know. Number one, it's different, mm -hmm. right? The the way we're communicating today, how technology is changing our lives, is unrefutably different. And number two, it's irreversible, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. debating on whether it's Good, bad, should we stop it? Should we not stop it? It's impossible to stop. We're not moving backwards. Facebook is not going to go away. Mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's silly to 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 try and you know get the kids to stop doing these silly behaviors and these you know it's not that's not gonna happen. It's not realistic. I think what we should do instead is to figure out, look, these things are here. How can they help us? And how do we put them in their place? How do we make sure that that we know where they belong and where they don't belong? So one thing I think um, uh, we tend to do when it comes to new technology is at first we buy it wholesale and mm. we, we, we apply it to all sorts of areas of our life. But then the natural evolution is that, look, every new technology gives us goods, but also has bads, right? Mm. And, that, and that happens with every new technolo technological de uh, development. There are most of the time unforeseen costs to these, to these products and services. And that's, I think, the phase we're going through now is to reassess where do these technologies belong. Clearly, they benefit our lives. Clearly, the world is voting with usage that these things are good, right? That Facebook and Twitter and our cell phones, I mean, the adoption rates are skyrocketing because these things are benefiting our lives. Now, I think it's time for this next phase where we actually think to ourselves, where does this belong? So I think there's some places where technology certainly does not belong, but I think we haven't made that adjustment. For example, um, you know, in the bedroom, I, I mm -hmm. don't keep my cell phone on my nightstand as I, I, I saw, I don't know exactly the number, but it was something like two thirds of Americans keep their, they charge their cell phones by their nightstand. In my life, at least, that's a bad idea because the trigger, we talked about triggers earlier, the trigger of every time I feel anxiety about work, about uh, my next day's schedule, about what's happening on social media, it's right there to take the action of picking up the phone. And I don't want it to be that easy. It doesn't serve me. I was... I found that I was taking time away from people I love, principally my wife, because at night we would be, you know, tapping and fondling our phones as opposed to spending quality time together. So I don't want those devices in my bedroom. I don't want them in my child's room. And frankly, I don't want them in the boardroom. I can't tell you how many times I consult with companies uh, and they call me in for this big expensive meeting that we're going to have. And there's 15 people around a table and it's usually the highest paid person in the room. 
is on their damn cell phone. Well, I mm -hmm. love technology. I'm a huge proponent of, of the, the, the things that technologies can do for our lives. But if we're going to have a meeting in the, in the physical world, well, then we need to be physically and mentally present. But mm -hmm. we haven't made that adjustment yet. We don't have the, the rules and the morals and the, um, uh, the, 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 the manners associated with when technology is appropriate and when it's not appropriate. And I think that's, well, that's the conversation we need to have next. Mm -hmm. I can agree with that. Now, I like to turn my phone off in many circumstances, like at a meeting or in the evening, or if I'm going to go to sleep, I just like to turn it off. So I have it off a lot. I also, uh, being very old-fashioned, I have a I have a flip phone still. I don't have the iPhone or the smartphone yet. So wow, that that is that's so retro that it's now cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just about, I'm really debating switching over, uh, you know, I kind of uh, can see some some advantages to it, but still, <laughs> I, I don't want people texting me, you know, I have people texting me and I say, don't text me, I have a flip phone, it takes me forever to answer you, just call me, I can talk, right, right. you know. I, I the, the texting I still don't ever understand. You know, why not send an email where you can use all ten fingers to type instead of two thumbs? <laughs> but I, I I know it's taken over, and it's it's everybody likes to do it except me apparently. <laughs> well, you know, there's it's funny. I have a, a good friend from business school who I just met met up with a few months ago. We had lunch together, and uh, this guy in business school used to have the latest and greatest. You know, when the new iPhone came out, he would be the guy in line who was the first to buy it. Uh, and, and when, you know, every new gadget that was out there, he was the first to try it out. But what's interesting is that now he's gone the other way. He, mm -hmm. he told me that, you know, as we sat together at, over lunch, he, he, he took out his phone and it wasn't quite a flip phone, but it was not, you know, it was, a, it was what we call a feature phone, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was not a smartphone. It didn't have any apps. It basically took calls and could do some basic SMS messaging, but, um, you know, he didn't use it for email. He didn't use it for everything else that, that a lot of us use today with Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter. He couldn't do any of that stuff, but he told me, you know, look, I, I have the mental clarity that I need throughout my day to think. You know, he was a consultant and he needed to think for a living. And so what he did when he wanted to, to have some, some headspace to actually come up with ideas, he would leave his desk and he would, he still wanted to be reachable in case of emergencies. If his wife needed to contact him or something, you know, really important happened at work, he wanted to be reachable, but he didn't want the constant distraction that he found was coming from having email tethered to his thigh all day long in the form of, of this, uh, his smartphone. So he actually went back, you know, he went to these, this phone that basically just took calls. And he said that for the first time he could do the work he needed to do, uh, without having this constant distraction. And I think those kind of solutions and being mindful of, look, how do I live the kind of life I want to live, uh, by putting these technologies in their place. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for considering the appropriate application of these products. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, the main reason I'm considering getting a smartphone is because our organization, I think, could benefit greatly if we developed an app, which we don't have any apps for our organization right now. Everything is uh, it's online. It's, uh, you know, it's on the web. Mm -hmm. So it's the old-fashioned technology. Actually, I wrote the I wrote all the uh, HTML code myself with a text editor. Mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty primitive. It's uh, basically it's straight HTML. <laughs> so you know that's how I learned to code. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't do anything fancy, but it's you know it's time to really have a much more interactive approach with our organization. I think we could do really well with that, and I would really like to have it you know, on the uh, smartphone so that, uh, you know, people could access it very easily. And, you know, I'm also very interested in finding out ways to make it appealing, attractive, and accessible, which is actually the reason why I picked, you, picked out your book when I saw it on Amazon and said, I have to read this. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate uh, it. Thank you. <laughs> That, which brings us back to what we were talking about in the first place is the is the hooked model, and we were through the first three stages, but we hadn't gotten to the fourth one yet, which is investment. So right, right. Let's get back to that. 
Yeah, so the investment phase is probably the most neglected of the four. It's the one that people don't consider because you know the 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 hook model looks deceptively like uh, just a standard feedback loop of you know some kind of stimulus, an action, and a reward. But I, I I did a lot of research on feedback loops and and habit loops. There's a bunch of different names for them. And what I didn't see present, which I did see present in all sorts of products that I was studying, that I was looking at in terms of what were the most habit forming products uh, out there, particularly when it comes to interactive products, is that they all had this investment phase. They all had some bit of effort that the user does to invest in the product. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking mm -hmm. about some bit of work that accomplishes one of two things, and sometimes both, which is something that loads the next trigger. So an example of that might be when you use an app like WhatsApp, right? When you send someone a message, there's no immediate gratification. This is something that we do for a future benefit because when we send someone a message, we're loading the next trigger because we will likely get a reply. And that reply is an external trigger to bring us back through the hook again. The other way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook is that they store value. So in all sorts of habit-forming products, and this is why I like working so much in technology these days, is because in all sorts of habit-forming products, you find that there's something that makes the product better with use. So it might be giving the company data, accruing followers, uh, learning a new skill with the product, uh, or it could be something like accruing a reputation score the more you use the product. So some the, these investments are something that, that the user does for anticipation of a future benefit that brings the user back by loading the next trigger and storing value in the product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I think there's also... This is just uh, off the top of my head intuitively. Um, it seems like when people invest in something, whether monetarily or in terms of effort, you know, it's the fact that they've, they don't want to lose that effort or that money that they've given them. That's, they value right. what they receive more. Um, I, I, there's a couple examples that come to mind, and one is uh, book pricing. Now, if you make your book free, uh, you'll have you know a zillion people download it. Uh, mm -hmm. Say it's a Kindle ebook, make it free, a zillion people download it. Nobody reads it. Right, right. Uh, um, if it's ninety nine cents, people, you know, if you have a three hundred page book at ninety nine cents, people think, well, you know, it's a piece of crap, mm -hmm. and they download it and they don't read it. You know, you, you almost have to put a decent price on it if you want people to actually value what they've bought. Right, and this is that this comes down to what's called the endowed progress effect, or at least it's related to the endowed progress effect. There was a great experiment where they uh, went to a car wash, and the researchers gave out these punch cards. You know, these punch cards where if you mm -hmm. get, uh, you know you buy nine, you get the tenth free, something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, they had a punch card where uh, in 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 group A, you had to get ten punches. But two were given to you for, for off the bat. So, you know, the, the attendant would give you a card. It would have 10 punches, and he would punch two for you and say, here you go. You're, you only got le eight left to go. The next group was given a card with just eight punches, but none of them were punched. So mm -hmm. the same number, right? Both took eight, eight visits to get your free car wash. But, of course, which one do you think was more likely to return? The person who had two punches already done out of 10, or the person who just had to do eight with no punches? Well, of course, it was the group A that had two punches already done, because now we have some stored value in the product. Now we have, you know, two free already. It's in the card, right? There's some kind of value associated with the fact that we're we're getting closer to the goal, that we put, there's, there's this effect of, you know, there's value inside this card now, and I think we see that in all kinds of circumstances, particularly uh, when it comes to online products. You know, when we when we put effort into something, uh, Dan Ariely calls this the IKEA effect. That when we buy furniture from IKEA, even if it's just crappy furniture, the fact that we've assembled it, we put labor into it. This is why you know many people they 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 buy some furniture for their dorm room and then they take it to their first apartment and then they take it to their second home. You know, even though it's just cheap 
crappy furniture, but they've invested in it. They've, you know, they put labor into it. And it mm-hmm. turns out that cognitively putting labor into something makes us like it more, makes us value it, perhaps irrationally so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the other example which comes to mind of this is uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, for newcomers, the first thing that they do for newcomers is to ask them to take the coffee commitment. Would you make the coffee next week? Mm. And, you know, this seems to me to be a way to get people to uh, invest their labor and to keep them involved. And, you know, since they've invested some labor, they don't want to give that up. Right. Makes a lot of sense. And, and, and also the fact that, you know, you, you know how many days sober you are. Uh, that's also a form of investment. You know, if you're if you're a week, a month, a year, ten years, that's an investment you built up that reinforces something that I don't really get into the book, um, but I think is a very important aspect of of how products and services change our behaviors, which is it begins to affect your identity, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you've been sober for X amount of time, you're constantly reminding yourself who you are, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's this very powerful psychological effect of investment. Mm-hmm. Now we've gone through the hook model, the four elements of it. Um, so, could you give us some examples of a successful way of hooking people versus what's unsuccessful? Sure. So, if you think of some of the most habit-forming technologies out there, like Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, WhatsApp. I mean, these these products all have hooks endemic in in them. Uh, there's others as well on the enterprise side, companies like Slack or GitHub or Stack Overflow, um, many of these companies have these very powerful hooks inside them. Um, let's take uh, Pinterest. Are you a Pinterest user? You ever, yes, you ever, oh, I've so used Pinterest, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Pinterest is doing incredibly well. Um, I'll walk you through their hook. Uh, Pinterest is, is kind of the replacement for, it's this online pin board. So it's the replacement for this behavior, this existing habit that people used to, you know, see a, ma- a magazine, maybe a fashion magazine, an architecture magazine, a food magazine, and they would tear out the pictures and put them in some kind of file folder. Well, that's that's Pinterest online. So the internal trigger for going to Pinterest to view an image on Pinterest might just be boredom, right? Mm-hmm. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, maybe it's a homemaker uh, who's watching the kids. The kids are down for a nap, or maybe it's a working person who has a big project they don't feel like finishing right now. And instead, the way they scratch this itch of boredom is to dream about their home or to look at interesting recipes of food or images of food or fashion images. So you hop on their Pinterest. That's the action is just to open the, the app on your phone or log into the website. The variable rewards, well, oh my gosh, I mean, variable rewards on Pinterest are ever-flowing. You've got you know, thousands and thousands of pictures arranged in this interesting format that um, Pinterest has kind of been famous for, for uh, popularizing what's called the infinite scroll because on their page, the, the, the images load dynamically. So as you're scrolling, you can literally never get to the bottom of the page because they just keep loading and loading. And so every time you... You, uh, you keep scrolling, that's almost like a slot machine effect, this scrolling and scrolling and searching and searching through all these images. And of course, they're curated by the community to be interesting, right? The, 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 the people at Pinterest use the data, which brings me now to the investment phase, that users put into the product based on what they like, what they pin, what they comment on, to tailor the results to their interests. So if you uh, like if you if you identify if you give the company data that you like uh, uh, recipes right you like gourmet food and that's the kind of things you like pinning is interesting pictures of food well guess what they're going to serve you in the future they're going to use that data to show you more interesting images based on the data you've given them in the past and then of course every time you pin repin share comment like do any of these actions you're also investing in the product by loading the next trigger. So when you pin something onto Pinterest, if somebody else invests in that product, if somebody else comments or likes or repins, the company sends you a message, loads the next trigger, and says, guess what? Somebody just commented on your photo or repinned your photo. Come back and join the conversation. And of course, that loads the next trigger and brings you back to the product again. Mm-hmm. Now, if I recall correctly, when Pinterest was new, the users were predominantly women. Um, 
Is that true, and is that still true, or is I, think, this... I think that is still the case. Yeah, I think it's majority women. Yeah. So yeah, I I really haven't made as good use of Pinterest as I as I should yet. You know, the problem is, you know, there's there's two ways to get a photo on Pinterest. You can upload from your hard drive, or you can uh, pull something off a website. And you know, I would be much better off if I put the photos on our website and then uh, pulled them over onto Pinterest, and so then people could click them and be taken to our website. But I haven't really started doing that yet. You know. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, yeah. When you get that smartphone, it'll become even easier. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so far, the, when I've used Pinterest, I've uploaded the phones from my hard drive, but that that, that doesn't do me nearly as good. As much good as getting them off website. I don't think you can do them. You can't pin from Facebook, right? Is that correct? I don't know if you can. You can. I don't think you can pin from Facebook, but you can share once you pin on Pinterest to Facebook, I believe. Yeah. See, I <laughs> I needed to go the other direction. Yeah. I, I finally got in. I finally got in the habit of creating memes, Facebook memes, and uh, uploading. You know, probably one per day, which is actually pretty good. Yeah. So that I'm getting a lot of uh, nice traffic on our business page from people seeing a lot of new images, and I got in the habit of posting a lot of uh, links to articles there. So I'm actually pulling in some pretty good traffic to uh, the business page for our business on Facebook and getting, you know, several new likes every day, which is, you know, it's, which is difficult to do if you're not advertising, you know. Right. Mark, Mark Zuckerberg wants you to spend a lot of advertising money yeah. there. Which <laughs> That's is, true. Yeah, that's I don't like that aspect of Facebook because, you know, Google, if you're nonprofit like we are, they'll give you a free AdWords grant. But, you know, Facebook says we don't care, you got to pay. Yeah. Yeah, they are um they are definitely focused on revenue these days. Um so how about some examples of uh, apps that don't work because they don't follow um the uh, hook model? What are some ways to do it wrong and fail? Right. So there's there's lots of I mean the vast majority of apps out there. I mean there's thousands and thousands of app makers um, who wish people were engaged with their product. I mean we you know we were talking earlier about apps uh, and technologies that uh, create habits and perhaps even addictions with with the uh, with their technologies. But but that's the tiny tiny minority of of products that have such a problem. I mean many people would wish for such a problem because the vast majority of app makers you know, barely see the light of day, uh, and their big problem is that nobody cares about their apps. And so I mean you you can throw a throw a stone in the app store so to speak, and you're going to hit somebody with a, an engagement problem because everybody has this engagement problem of bringing people back and. That's really what the book is about is if you're building a product that is benefiting people's lives that you, you know, that you think is important for people to use, but you have this challenge of, geez, how do we bring people back without spending a lot of money on expensive advertising or without sending a lot of spammy messages? How do we bring people back on their own with unprompted user engagement? You know, the, the answer is you have to have a hook. And so to, to answer your question of, you know, what about people who are doing it wrong? The reason people do it wrong is because they're missing one or more steps of the hook that they think, hey, I'll just make a better product out there and people will just gravitate to it. And that's not true, that it turns out that when it comes to the business world, the, the cold reality is that many times the best product doesn't win. That many times it's the fact that, the, that a product has a stickier habit associated with it that people have begun to form an association that this is my solution and they don't even look for better solutions out there because they've already formed a habit around using a particular product. And so uh, there are you know, lots and lots of examples of people doing it wrong and the reason they do it wrong is because they don't consider uh, the importance of having these four critical phases of the hook in their product. Okay. I want to move on to the next part. I really like this chapter. I was reading it right before I called you, and it's the well, actually two chapters here, about about what you're going to do with the the app that you create or the hook that you create. And you had a four way model of uh, peddlers and dealers and entertainers and facilitators. Right, right. Tell tell me about that and about your your moral philosophy of uh, the hook. 
Right. So the, the question of can we create habit-forming technologies is no longer a question, right? It's, it's, it's moot because we, we know we can. I mean, and, and I, I, for most of the book, I tell people how to do that. It's following this four-step model, ensuring that you have uh, the four basic elements of the hook inside your product to make sure that, that you can form these habits. So, you know, given that that's, that's the case, that we know we can form habits, well, then now the question becomes, where should we form habits? And that chapter that you're, that you're um, referring to is called The Morality of Manipulation. Uh, and the idea is that I, I would like to have product makers think about what's the appropriate application of the psychology associated with habit design. Uh, and so how, we can, how can we use this information for good? And so the formula, the kind of recipe that I give product makers in how to use this, this psychology of habit design for good is to ask themselves this two-part test. That you need to answer in the affirmative to these two questions to be what I call a facilitator. And I'll tell you more about what a facilitator is. So here's the two-part test. Question number one is, do I believe what I'm working on, right, what I'm building, is materially improving people's lives? That's question number one. Question number two, am I the user of the product? So that's the two-part test. And if you can say yes to both of those, you're what I call a facilitator. And now let me, let me, let me stop to, to, to answer why I think those two questions are so important. Uh, number one, you know, the, the first question should be pretty obvious. Is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? This isn't a requirement for a good business, by the way. There's lots of people who believe that could would answer that question in the negative, right? No, it doesn't really improve people's lives. And they can still make a lot of money. But this, this, this model is for somebody who says, look, how do we make sure that I use uh, my time effectively? How do I make sure that I'm uh, being moral around the way that I'm influencing people's behaviors? And not everybody cares about that. But this isn't a tool for you to judge other people or for other people to judge you. This is a tool for makers to judge themselves. How should they allocate their valuable human capital? The limited time we have here on Earth, how could they spend that time uh, to, to do good. And so that's the first question. Do I believe what I'm working on materially improves people's lives? The second question of am I the user? Well, why do I ask that? The reason I ask that is because I want people to break the first rule of drug dealing. And of course, the first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. And so the reason I want people to break that rule is because if what you're working on has negative effects, on people, I want you to be the first to know it, right? So that's kind mm -hmm. of the, the safeguard around building technology that's too manipulative, that's potentially harmful, is that if you're the user and you believe what you're building materially improves people's lives, you're going to be the first to know about it. And so with that two-part test, by being a facilitator, not only do I think you stand on firm moral ground, it turns out the secondary benefit is that you increase your odds of success. Because if you think about the companies I just talked about earlier, Twitter and Facebook and Google and WhatsApp and Instagram, all these companies that have, you know, have multi-billion dollar valuations today, well, all of these companies were started by facilitators. Because, mm -hmm. And the reason that it's such a huge competitive advantage to be a facilitator is that you know your customer because you are the customer. I can't tell you how many products I, I work with people. And again, it doesn't mean you can't succeed monetarily uh, by not being a facilitator. Even if you're not the user, it doesn't mean you won't succeed. It's just that it's so hard to do that. It's so hard to deeply understand your user, your customer, without actually being the customer yourself. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, in the case of our program, I mean, the HAMS program, the Harm Reduction for Alcohol program, which uh, I developed, I developed it because I needed it mm. for myself. Right. And, you know, I, there were some like-minded people that were around that uh, worked with me online. We developed it online through, you know, a good old Yahoo group, email group, mm -hmm. and discussing back and forth of, you know, what changes we could make to improve our drinking habits, to, you know, take days off, to uh, find a pattern of alcohol use that we would be happy with and live with that was not causing problems. Right. You know? So definitely 
in terms of my product, I am a facilitator. I am doing it to not only improve other people's lives, but something that I can use myself and have used myself for, for the past 12 years now. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I really love that because it's, it's the one spot that an entrepreneur can, can, can be in where they can't fail. You know, failure is such a big fear for people who are going into entrepreneurial enterprises um, but if you are a facilitator, the beauty of it is if you're making something as you did and as I did with this book, if you're making something that you want, I mean, I, I wrote this book because I wanted answers. I, I didn't have the answers. I wanted the answers to tell me how do these things work? What's the deeper psychology here? Why does, how do I build better products myself? And the beauty of it is that, that you can't fail. Because even if it's not the next Facebook, even if it's not a huge commercial success and you don't IPO, it doesn't matter because you built something that you believe needed to exist in the world to benefit you. Mm -hmm. And so, the, and that's just such a rare thing, right? Because, you know, so much of what makes a company a, a financial success is out of your control. There's a competitive landscape, there's uh, funding, there's employees, there's all these factors that... Are, are really, you know, there's an element of luck to the startup game. Mm -hmm. But this is one area that you can control 100%. You can choose what you decide to work on. And if you are one of those facilitators, you really can't fail. Because worst case scenario, you built something that you really wanted. And that's mm -hmm. very, very powerful. Yes, I've improved my own life. So that alone is enough reward. Right. And, you know, we're still very small. But so, which is why I focus on, you know, each individual that improves their life by using what we've created with our program. You know, I don't th think about, you know, when are we going to have a million members? When are we going to have 10 million members? I think about, oh, well, Joe that joined the program, you know, last month is doing really well. He's uh, improved. He's cut back his drinking, you know, 50%. It's great. Right, right, right. That's, ter that's terrific. I mean, that's that's a... It's a beautiful thing to, to be in that situation and say, look, I, I really believe that what I'm doing is impactful and benefits. It's something that I think, uh, you know, I need personally. And, and, and if that drives you forward, that is, that's an incredible thing, right? I, I think it's one of the best aspects of, of doing uh, your own venture. So let's continue with this uh, four-part division of people, though. We talked about, we were talking about the, oh, uh, it's just all the facilitator, the dealer, the peddler, and what's the fourth one? Entertainer. The entertainer. Right. Yes. So yeah. we were talking about the facilitator, but how about the other three categories? Tell me about those. Yeah. So, so again, this isn't anything to judge other people. This is just a tool to use uh, to allocate your own human capital, how you will decide to uh, to, to invest your, your limited time here on earth and what, what kind of product you're going to work on, what you're going to, uh, you know, if you're interested in forming a, a moral habit-forming company, which one of these do you want to be? And again, you could be successful in all of these categories, but basically how you answer to those two questions of do you believe you're materially improving people's lives and do you use the product yourself, that will put you in one of those four buckets. So you can say yes, no to either of those questions, and so you'll come up with four classifications. And only the facilitator is the kind of person who says yes to both of those. I believe I'm materially improving people's lives, and I use the product myself. Um, again, you, know, you can make money in any one of those quadrants. It's just that making money in any of those quadrants but the, the facilitator quadrant is, for many people, all there is. Right. So that, you know, for, 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 for you, for example, even if the business isn't an IPO, uh, because you're, you're doing it for reasons that are greater than just the end outcome, the means becomes the motivator. It's not just about the end, you know, mm -hmm. to be very personal. My last company, I was really just focused on the outcome. I just wanted to sell the company and make money. Uh, and, and, and move on so I could do what I really wanted to do. Well, that, that's kind of a dead end, and, and I regret that, and I'll never do that again. And the business kind of had a so-so outcome. It wasn't uh, – my first business was a different story, but my second company, it, you know, we, it, we did it for the wrong reasons, to be frank, and uh, I won't do that again. Whereas when I started writing uh, and my current line of work, I didn't intend this to become a business at all. I was writing because I was really curious to find out the answers to my questions, 
And it turns out that it, it improved other people's lives. And I was the user of what I was making. You know, I was the beneficiary of much of the research I was doing. And, and so, wow, you know, that became what now is, is this best-selling book. Uh, and of course, my consulting practice and blog and videos and courses and things that I really enjoy. And um, yeah, that's kind of my, my philosophy going forward is to continue to find ways to be a facilitator. Mm -hmm. Although it's also true some people really enjoy the role of entertainer, isn't it? Right. So entertainers, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with any of these businesses. Again, it's, it's a guide for yourself, not for uh, anybody to judge you. An entertainer is, is someone who's making a product that they use, but that doesn't necessarily improve people's lives and, and in a material way. So entertainment, of course, serves a very valuable purpose. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I love reading fiction and I love watching movies and I enjoy art. All of these things are, are terrific. But when it comes from a habit-forming perspective, remember, all of this is written with the lens of a habit, um, you know, the, that art or uh, movies or books, these things, or video games for that example, these things are things that are engaging for a while, but then we, we leave, right? We stop mm -hmm. playing mm -hmm. video games. We don't watch many movies more than once. We don't read books again and again and again. We read them once and then we move on to the next thing. And so the reason is because, you know, you know short, short of maybe, you know, uh, religious texts, uh, these things don't provide the kind of long-term sustained uh, value in people's lives that they would want to refer to them again and again and again and again and form habits around them. Um, and so that's why an entertainer is making a product like, let's say, a video game that's that's engaging for a while, but then the user needs to go to the next game and the next game. It's, it's constantly about new, 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 new. Um, mm -hmm. And again, not that you can't form a good business around that. Um, it's just that without creating sustainable um, uh, value in people's lives that they would want to form a habit with just that one experience. You constantly have to create more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Now, technology has created the uh, possibility for something that didn't really exist uh, too much in earlier times, uh, and it's something that's referred to as binge watching. You right. know, when there's a series out there, and now you can have you know, all 100 episodes and watch them all from start to finish without doing anything else in between except taking breaks to sleep. Um, you know, my experience with this is when you do this, you get really hollow inside. You get really <laughs> messed up mentally. Yeah. yeah. No, you know, it's, it's interesting. So um, the next uh, thing I'm working on here is is how to... Uh, what to actually do in your own life to prevent unwanted manipulation. And so there's a few kind of uh, techniques that, that I'm using and I'm experimenting on my own life. And um, there's, a, there's a few that basically look at the hook model and try and figure out, look, <clears throat> excuse me, how do I break the hooks in my life that I don't want? Mm -hmm. So how do I make sure the technology is serving me and that I'm not just serving the companies making these technologies and so part of it is thinking, thinking, uh, you know, through this framework of the hook to figure out where can I break the hook so that I'm not uh, drawn into these these products and services that maybe are not benefiting me. So one technique is to not start, <laughs> right? So when it comes to binge watching, uh, what 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 binge what makes binge watching work, right, is that you invest in the the episode so uh the trigger let's say with which with binge watching on netflix might be well you're bored it's the evening you don't want to be you know you don't want to think you, you're not in the mood to really read something and to be mentally uh really engaged you kind of want to veg out so that would be the internal trigger the action is to turn on the tv and for the first time the technology embedded in our tvs today or with the little uh boxes that sit next to them gives us video on demand so it's it's so easy today right it's not like it was 10 years ago when you had to actually go to the video store to rent something the video is right there so the action is easier than ever before well the variable reward is implicit in the content the variable reward is that the episode is interesting it's you know there's there's mystery around how the episode will end, how the happy ending will be resolved, how is the conflict, a conflict going to play out. I mean, that's what good uh, narrative is all about, is the variability. The investment is the fact that you've already watched the episode, you know the characters, you have an emotional commitment to them, and there's this anticipation of what's going to happen next because you've already spent the time watching episode number one. And if you've already watched episode number one and you've put in a half an hour 
Well, then, of course, the cliffhanger they leave you with, and every episode of these binge-watching shows uh, uh, leaves you with a cliffhanger, right? There's never a happy ending where you can walk away from. It always is about, here's what happens next. There's this bit of mystery to bring you back in. Well, you've already invested a half an hour, and then you watch episode two, and now it's an hour. Now it's three hours. Well, might as well finish the series. Why? Because only an idiot would have invested three hours without finishing the series, and so, of course, you go ahead and finish it. So you watch for another hour until you've you know, finished the whole season. So these hooks are in all sorts of – I hope this is resonating. I, it, it certainly mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, has brought me into some of these products. And so you know, I know myself and I know how these products work, and so I don't even start. Like you know, I'll watch a movie because I know uh, exactly how long that movie is going to be. It's going to be an hour and a half, two hours. I, I know in the reviews, if I check Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, it'll tell me exactly how long that movie is. Whereas it's a myth to, to me, at least in my life, to watch you know an episode or two of Breaking Bad. That's not going to happen. I, I'm going to finish the series because that's the way these things are designed. They're designed to keep bringing you back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I had to, many, many years ago, I had to just get rid of my television. I could not deal with it because the television doesn't turn itself off. Right, right. Once I turned it on, I would be stuck. And I watched crap that I didn't like and didn't enjoy and, you know, get up the next morning and say, well, I wasted the whole day watching crap that I didn't like. I didn't have any fun and then turn the TV back on and start the whole thing all over again. Yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, this is interesting because, um, uh, you know, many times when I hear people complaining about how addictive technology is and how uh, it's turning our brains into mush, uh, you know, there is an element of that. I, I, I will be the first to, 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 um, to warn people about the addictive properties of these technologies. But remember, you know, we don't live in a vacuum, that what these technologies are displacing is something much worse, which I think is, is television. You know, like <laughs> if, you, if you rewind the clocks, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, uh, you, you could substitute the complaints today about technology and with with television, and they would sound almost identical. But I think television is much much worse. And, you know, the average American watches five hours of television a day, and this is a completely passive medium. And I'm not anti TV; I think it has a place in our lives. But shoot, I'd I'd much rather have people engaging with one another in dialogue over Twitter or Facebook or uh, anything interactive that brings real people together. Uh, versus television, which is a completely passive experience. Not again, not that it doesn't have its place, but you're right. I mean, there's 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 so much content that leaves you kind of empty and doesn't fulfill you, doesn't bring you closer to any real human beings. I would much rather have people uh, interacting with these these experiences that uh, involve real people in their lives and bring them closer together in their relationships than just passively consuming content on the boob tube. Mm. Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, all these things, uh, the old Yahoo email groups, which are still around, they all have a great uh, capacity for communication with individuals, and that's what I use Facebook for all the time is communication. Um, I decided a long time ago, after playing Farmville for a short period, um, on a really old, slow computer that just wasn't really up to standard at all, and to make me take forever and i said yeah i'm not going to play any more of these games they're not doing anything for me right but i use facebook all the time to talk to people i have so many uh such a great network of people i've developed there and we communicate all the time it's it's a wonderful tool yeah to be used properly right exactly and and that's really what i'm advocating for is to, to 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 be thoughtful about how we use these products because you know there i will say that there is a proportion of the population that gets addicted now, there's, there's a proportion of the population that has a psychographic profile, uh, propensity for addiction, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of debate in the, in the community around this as well, but there's a certain proportion of people who are hurting themselves by overusing these products, and of course we know that there's, you know, the, the, the humanity has been plagued with overusing all sorts of products. Uh, and the second part is not only are they hurting themselves, but they can't stop. And so I, I, I actually, you know, I, I think that companies should do more to help those people. Uh, who can't stop. And I mean, the good news is that here for the first time, when it comes to these interactive products, unlike other products that are potentially addictive, if you think about alcohol, 
you know, an alcohol distiller could throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know who the alcoholics are. How would we know how much people are drinking? <laughs> well, for the first time, these interactive products, I mean, the upside of, uh, of these companies collecting so much data about us is that for the first time they could do something about us. So that, that for people who are, who have a problem with these products, the people who are, you know, using Farmville or Facebook too much, let's say, these companies could do something, and there are companies already like Stack Overflow that if you use the product more than 20 hours a week, they don't allow you to collect any more points. So they make the, they actually break the hook, if you think about it, by, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by removing some of the rewarding aspects of the experience to, to slow people down, to, 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 to get them to be a little bit more mindful about why they're using the product. Uh, and I think that's, that's something that we should see in more products. But of course, I, you know, I think that's... That's that's good. I think that's a good thing that that products and services can can uh, do something with the data they have about overuse. But to put it in perspective, I mean, you know, we're not using Facebook intravenously. That for the vast majority of people, uh, maybe these things are bad habits at times. Maybe they overcheck from time to time when they're feeling particularly uh, like they they are feeling these internal triggers more frequently in their lives. Like when they're seeking more connection or particularly lonely, maybe they're using these products to an unhealthy degree. But for the vast majority of people, they can scale that back, right? They realize, hey, this mm -hmm. isn't serving me, kind of like you did with Farmville. This isn't helping my life. It's not improving my life. And they dial back or they quit completely. Uh, and that's that's the typical behavior for 95% of people who are using these products. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things which might be a little surprising uh, considering all the propaganda we have against drugs and uh, the evil alcohol and all that is uh, you know actually the majority of people that use illegal drugs are also in control and it's only a small number that actually right. do run out of control and become addicted but I don't want to run all off track on that I just no, have to no, make I, that I, note I absolutely agree with you and in fact I'm, I'm working I just finished a chapter in my next book about exactly this because I was scratching my head about about uh, you know what, what, what does all this mean that some people get addicted and some people can't stop but it turns out that yeah for the vast majority of people they go through this cycle of uh, you know, temporarily overdoing things and then a reassessment phase of where is this stuff helping me and where is it hurting me? And then if it hurts them, they stop <laughs> that they just, you know, as you mentioned, they, they just quit or they use it in, in, in degrees that they, they, they don't become unhealthfully addicted to. Well, I'm going to send you a link on email to a good article uh, in the in the professional journals, the medical journals, uh, from the National Epidemiological Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, which talks about the remission rates for uh, addiction mm. and the lifetime remission rate for addiction to cocaine is over 99 percent. Mm, mm. And with alcohol, it's about 91%. It's 90.6% mm. lifetime remission rate of alcohol addiction. Right. So uh, right. actually, that's the normal outcome is people get over these things on their own. Sometimes it can take a really long time. The half-life for the alcohol addiction is uh, 14 years. Mm, mm. For the cocaine addiction, it's five years. Uh, but I'm going to send you a link to that article. It's a really interesting one that you might find. Uh, really yeah, I'd love to see it. Yeah. I'd love to see it. And I, I think that's, I mean, that I, I, I do think, you know, it would be nice if we could find ways to help people pass through this terrible cycle of addiction to get to the, the other side of remission uh, faster in some exactly. way. I, I'm hoping that the fact that these products and services know how much people are using these products, maybe that provides a silver lining. Maybe there are ways to help people and intervene in constructive ways. Well, we found a lot of useful things, uh, you know, in past, you know, several decades. There have been a lot of evidence-based examples of how to help people change things like motivational interviewing. You know, you're in, you're in my ballywick now. So, yes, there are definitely some helpful ways to – some great ways to help people make the changes that they need to make. And very often, you know, we find that people with addictive behaviors have underlying psychological issues that need to be treated like depression, anxiety, PTSD. Um, and treatment of those issues is very useful. It doesn't end the addiction by itself because people need to actually take specific steps to uh, 
deal with the addiction itself as well as deal with the underlying psychological issues. But when people deal with both, they have very good outcomes. Right, right. Yeah, I'd love to, we, we should talk about that more. I'd love to figure out how this works in an interactive environment. And it's frankly not something I have a lot of expertise in, but I would love to figure out what the digital equivalent is for some of these, uh, some of these intervention tools. Yeah, I think they could be worked out very well. Um, things like, uh, well, Pat Denning has a really good book called Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy, Second Edition. I'm going to send you a link to that and to Andrew Tatarsky's book about harm reduction psychotherapy. And the, the real idea is that was just shocking to everyone was that you can do psychological psychotherapy with people who are actively using drugs, and it's actually highly effective. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I would love to continue the conversation. But, well, we're getting up to about, oh, we just passed the one-hour mark. That was a quick conversation. Yeah, that went by fast, huh? <laughs> so let's talk about the last chapter in the book, Habit Testing and Where to Look. And I haven't read this chapter at all yet, so tell me what's in it. Sure. So the chapter is around, you know, where do you look for opportunities? Where would you find new uh, uh, virgin territory, so to speak, on forming new habit-forming products? Uh, and so the, the answer is that there's a few things you can do. You know, you can look for nascent behaviors. You can look for behaviors that uh, current habits that people are doing but that haven't been codified into any sort of product environment, right? So look for places where people are are using uh, off-the-shelf solutions uh, or maybe they're hacking together, you know, scotch tape and bubble gum to make a product. And so that's a great place to look for new opportunities, uh, new things that, you know, if you find an area in your life that you're using six different tools to get an outcome, uh, you know, many times that's where opportunity strikes is because somebody who can look at all these this pain they're going through and all this extra effort they're going through and can patch together these these various solutions into one product, uh, that's a great place for opportunities. And, and so that's just one example. I talk about other areas to look into where, um, where, where habit-forming opportunities might lie, such as interface changes. So whenever there's a shift in the way we interact with technology, that's another opportunity where the habit deck, so to speak, gets reshuffled or all the old habits we used to have on, on the old interface uh, now need to find a new home on the new interface. So when we went from desktop to, uh, to laptops to mobile and now to wearables, uh, that every time there's that shift, there's a new opportunity for habit-forming products. And then I talk about this technique called habit testing, uh, which is this three-step process that companies use to figure out uh, why their particular product might be habit-forming. So even with a small percentage of users, if you can quickly identify who are the users that are using the product with enough frequency to, to qualify as engaged users, as habituated users, uh, I give this three-step process to learn from those users by understanding what they're doing, by codifying the steps that they're doing, what steps they took inside the product, and then modifying the product so that everybody is doing a similar set of behaviors. And so using this technique, you can take what might be a small group of users and build that an experience based on what your users are telling you is the most engaging aspect of your product. Okay. Well, I think it's about time for us to finish up. So I want to thank you very much for being our guest this afternoon, Nir. My pleasure. Okay, everybody, we'll see you all next week when we have a new show for you.